I Could Murder a Cocktail, Episode 2, Dr. Death. Hi, and welcome to I Could Murder a Cocktail, Episode 2. Today we're going to be talking about Harold Shipman, also known as the Doctor of Death. The cocktail we're going to be going for today is Death Angel. The ingredients are orange juice, rum, and amaretto. The ingredients of which you can find on our social media. Should we give it a taste? Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Social distance cheers, Carl. Cheers. Social distance cheers. Ellie, don't slice your hand open this time. Yeah, guys, I uh, sliced my hand open after last week's episode. It was it wasn't very fun. She's got a badass scar now, though. <laughs> she was almost episode two. <laughs> <laughs> it was the glass that did it. Death by glass. That's really nice. Mm. I like anything with orange juice in it, but it used to be my hangover cure, and now it just makes me think of alcohol, so it doesn't work as much. It's not ideal, really. Mm. I feel like I'm on holiday. Do you mm. know what I mean? It's the kind of thing you'd have on a beach. Oh, there's um. Oh no, I thought there was grass in my cocktail, but it's just it's just the garnish. The effort the Molly puts into things, and then you just insult it. I made the garnishes. <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> anyway, anyway, let's just get straight into it. Harold Frederick Shipman, known as Fred to family and friends, was born in Nottingham, England, on the fourteenth of June, nineteen forty-six. He was the second of four children. His parents were Vera and Harold Shipman. He was particularly close with his mother growing up. She viewed him as her favourite child, the one that was going to go the furthest. She instilled in him an early sense of superiority that tainted most of his later relationships, leaving him an isolated adolescent with very few friends. So are we going on those red flag rules again? Because <laughs> I don't even think we should begin to count the red flags. I was going to say, one. maybe we should make a chart for mm. next episode of like, just we can just pin a red flag on every yeah. time. I'm starting to get scared for my future though, because close with his mum seems to be something. And I, I'm close with his very close with my mum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my friends tend to keep me six feet away at all times. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing to do with the pandemic, Con. We just... Don't want to be that close. The pandemic will be over and we'll be like, oh, social distancing. <laughs> we're, still, we're actually still doing social distancing. Hard we're just to afraid murder of someone. <laughs> it's hard to murder someone from six feet, six away. feet away. So I don't know. We get a spear. <laughs> Bow and arrow. Yeah, a javelin. Drop then it looks piano. like an accident. Yeah. Ellie was always a big fan of the javelin. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually really good at javelin in school for a bit. Oh, there we go. There's my alibi. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, Vera died of cancer when Harold Shipman was 17. Her death came in a similar manner to what would later become his own modus operandi. In the later stages of her disease, she had morphine administered to her at home by a doctor. He witnessed his mother's pain subside in light of her terminal condition up until her death on the 21st of June 1963. Devastated by her death, he was determined to go to medical school and was admitted to Leeds University Medical School for training before serving his hospital internship. He graduated in 1970, going on to work at Pontefract General Infirmary in West Riding of Yorkshire. He had met his wife-to-be Primrose in 1966 at the age of 19, and they were married when she was 17 and five months pregnant with their first child. By 1974, he was a father of two, and he had joined a medical practice in Todmorden? Todd mm-hmm. No idea, sorry. Uh, in Todmorden, Yorkshire, where he initially thrived as a family practitioner, 
before allegedly becoming addicted to the painkiller pethidine. He forged prescriptions for large amounts of the drug and was eventually forced to leave the practice when caught by his medical colleagues in 1975. He hasn't been there that long. <laughs> it's like, give it a while. Also, uh, later in that same year, in the name of one of his dying patients, he obtained enough morphine to kill 360 people. God. It's insane. not like, okay, I'll chuck a bit of extra morphine on there. That's... 360 people. So if that's not like... Like the biggest red flag. Exactly. <laughs> no one carries around that much morphine. How, like, how would you even actually carry around that much morphine? Who gave him that much morphine and went, seems responsible. This seems carry fine. On, sir. Normal. Can I buy two packs of paracetamol at Boots? No. <laughs> We're worried for your life. 360 people's worth of morphine. It's the thing though, isn't it? Like, if you're a doctor, if you're putting yourself in that authoritative role, Mm. you're a person of trust, aren't you? Mm. So, well, that was the biggest thing with him, really, wasn't it? That he was a trusted family doctor. Yeah. After he was forced to leave the medical practice, he did enter a drug rehab programme and was subsequently... Sorry, and subsequently received a small fine of £600 and a conviction for forgery. A couple of years later, he was accepted onto the staff at Donnybrook Medical Centre in Hyde, where he portrayed himself as a hard-working doctor who enjoyed the trust of patients and colleagues alike. He did have a reputation for arrogance among junior staff, however, uh, but he did then remain on staff there for almost two decades, and his behaviour incurred only minor interest from other healthcare professionals. What's minor interest? Like, like... Hey, Harold's a bit weird, isn't he? <laughs> Do you see how much morphine he got the other day? Yeah. <laughs> like... He's got quite a lot in that bag. I think that's minor interest. <laughs> Did you see him have to use a van to pick up all the medication his patient's got? <laughs> it's like getting one of those, you know, when you move house and you get one of those massive lorries. Yeah. Maybe he was just driving one of those, right? I mean, his dad was a lorry driver, so he had connections. We're assuming now. <laughs> Do not believe us we, that Harold yeah. Shipman used to drive around tons of morphine in a lorry. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably morphine to kill 360 people might be a vial of it. Like, it might That's be true. a I glass of orange juice worth. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about his crimes and the trial. So the local undertaker was the first person that kind of saw the red flags and noticed that Dr. Shipman's patients seemed to be dying at an unusually high rate and exhibited similar poses in death. Uh, Most were fully clothed and usually sitting up or reclining on a settee. Uh, He was concerned enough to approach Shipman about it directly, which is like great that you wanted to approach him directly, but no one's going to go, oh, I am the murderer. Oh, yeah, you've got it first guess. You're not going to admit it, are you? No. Although he went to Shipman directly, Shipman reassured him that there was nothing to be concerned about. Later, another medical colleague, Dr Susan Booth, also found this similarity disturbing and the local coroner's office was alerted. So a covert investigation followed, but Shipman was cleared as it appeared that his records were in order. The inquiry failed to contact the General Medical Council or to check criminal records, which would have yielded evidence of Shipman's previous record. Because I guess if they'd have seen 
that he's already been to rehab and been charged with forgery with yeah that would have been another red flag Uh, Later, a more thorough investigation revealed that Shipman altered medical records of his patients to corroborate their causes of death. It's almost impossible to establish exactly when Shipman began killing his patients, or indeed exactly how many died at his hands, which is just terrifying. Yeah, because it's like you hear about these murderers which have killed this many people, but we don't even know how many people that he could have killed. Yeah, and it's the thing of... Like, you you go to your doctor, you trust that if you say, oh, this is, like, hurting me or whatever, they're going to fix you Mm. or help you to get better. Not someone in that duty of care that's going to go, oh, well, you're a bit old, so... Yeah, complete abuse of trust. Completely. Shipman always denied all of the charges, which obviously didn't assist the authorities in trying to prove what he was doing. His killing spree was only brought to an end thanks to the determination of Angela Woodruff, the daughter of one of his victims, who refused to accept the explanations given for her mother's death. Kathleen Grundy, an active, wealthy 81-year-old widow, was found dead in her home on June 24th, 1998, following an earlier visit by Shipman. Woodruff, Kathleen's daughter, was advised by Shipman that an autopsy was not required and Grundy was buried in accordance with her daughter's wishes. So Woodruff was a lawyer and had always handled her mother's affairs, so it was with some surprise that she discovered that another will existed, leaving a bulk of her mother's estate to Dr Shipman. And this is kind of, like last week we talked about most serial killers kind of shoot themselves in the foot when they get too greedy or when yeah. they get too confident or when the arrogance sets in. And that's kind of what happened here. Do we know how much he had kind of tried to get from her estate? No. So I couldn't find that out, but I did find that it wasn't only her estate that he'd been trying to do this with. Right. So although this is the only one that I'm going to mention, he actually tried to change a lot of his patient's will, which is kind of the straw that broke the camel back with the investigation. But you got to wonder with, obviously if it's happened before, if she's the one that made people realise mm. that people's relationships with their doctors must have been so entirely different that people's kids just accepted that they left. Mm. That, that he must have seemed like yeah. that they, it was reasonable for them to give a bit of their money at the end yeah. to their doctor who'd help them through. Mm. It's the trust element yeah. again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Like imagine now, like, leaving a bit of money in your will to your local GP. Like, <laughs> you I, you I, wouldn't I, see it, would you? No. Um, Woodruff was convinced that the document was forgery and that Shipman had murdered her mother, forging the will to benefit from her death. She alerted the local police where Detective Superintendent Burnett Possels, I think that's how you say it, Quickly, excellent name. I know, I'm just worried now that someone's going to come back and be like, that's not how you said it. Possels. Bernard Possels. It's like someone off Wind in the Willows. And <laughs> Bernard Possels, the crafty badger. <laughs> uh, Detective Superintendent Bernard Possels to you. <laughs> um, so Bernard Possels quickly came to the same conclusion upon examination of the evidence. Grundy's body was exhumed and the post-mortem revealed that she'd died of a morphine overdose. That lorry load of morphine he was carrying around. He just pulled up in the big lorry, (laughs) did what he had to do. Get in the back. (laughs) Get in the van. 
they could tell that the morphine was administered within three hours of her death, precisely within the time frame of Shipman's visit to her. Shipman's home was raided, yielding medical records, an odd collection of jewellery, an old typewriter, which proved to be the instrument upon which Grundy's forged will had been produced. It was immediately apparent to the police from the medical records seized that the case would extend further than a single death in question. The priority was given to those deaths it would be most productive to investigate, namely the victims who had not been cremated um, and those who had died following a home visit from Shipman. Those were the ones which were given priority. Shipman had urged families to cremate their relatives in a large number of cases, stressing that no further investigation of their deaths were necessary, even in the instances where relatives had died of causes previously unknown to the families. In situations where they did raise questions, Shipman would provide computerised medical records that corroborated his cause of death pronouncements. The inquiry identified 215 victims and estimated his total victim count at 250. That's terrifying. Yeah. That's just what they think, again. That's, yeah. It could be 100 more, it could be 100 less. It's the unsure yeah. aspect of all of this, yeah. which is just harrowing. How many people just just died after seeing him? And he was like, <laughs> oh, I wanted to murder her. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wasn't even me, guys. I'm totally scribbling her off the list. Or even the times he was trying to be a good doctor and keep someone alive when they died. He's like, oh, this is going to fuck my stats. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to look really bad now that I've murdered all those other ones. <laughs> so about 80% of his victims were elderly women, which is just so cowardly. Yeah. And completely just I can't even think of the words well like it seems very much that he was opportunistic because going for elderly women so it's potentially people that families may look at and say oh well I thought they were in good health but obviously Mm. not as good as we thought maybe there are things going on behind the scenes Mm. and then if he's editing medical records he's saying oh they had this problem they had that problem people wouldn't necessarily know so and it's such a yeah, like a cowardly thing to do. Yeah, and we can say what we want about the families, like, oh, why would you believe them, this will or whatever. But if someone I love had just passed away and I was grieving and I was brought a will and I was brought medical records, which all corroborated one story, I'm not sure I would question it. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, hindsight is a brilliant thing, which most of these families didn't have at the time. Yeah. And it's just heartbreaking. And you don't want to think that your elderly relative was murdered by the doctor. Yeah, or taken advantage of in any way, yeah. whether it be a will or murdered, or it's just it's horrible to think. Shipman's youngest confirmed victim was a 41-year-old man, which completely kind of uh, completely goes against what he started to do. Yeah, with 80% of the his victims being elderly women. Couldn't be more different, really. Yeah. Significant suspicion arose that he had killed patients as young as four. that's you just don't even that's horrible to think about and again it's the vulnerability Mm. children and elderly people it's the same as like we talked last week as well that sounds bad i I don't know how to put this without sounding like someone who wants to murder people for money but these elderly you know he he murdered elderly Mm. women he might not have seen it as murder we've already talked about his obsession with morphine and you know kind of Mm. helping them and then helped himself to their wills afterwards it makes you think that his 
his motives were obviously not money. Yeah. yeah. Or obviously not just money. Yeah. And not just, oh, I'm easing the suffering. Mm-hmm. There is no reason. I mean, there's, there's no reason for any of it. Mm. But particularly someone as young as four. Such like an innocent soul. Yeah. That there is just nothing to gain from it. His motives were unclear. Some speculated the shipman may have been seeking the avenge to avenge the death of his mother, while others suggested that he thought he was practising euthanasia, removing the population of older people who might otherwise have become a burden to the healthcare system. Which, again, is just like, okay, you may have think that you were doing the right thing, but to take that initiative and do you, such cruel You can't decide who, I don't, who this gets is, to live. Yeah, you go, oh, right. You're mm, no, you're you're alright. You can live. Mm, you no, go on. You're yeah. on the list. Like I, where do you? How do you decide that? How does one person think that they are allowed that kind of power? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. So a third possibility raised that was uh, that he derived pleasure from the knowledge that as a doctor he had the power of life or death over his patients, and that killing was the means through which he expressed his power which we do see quite a lot in doctor death cases Mm -hmm. it's it's the power and the ability to be able to make those decisions you think if it was just someone walking on the street it would usually have to be very premeditated you have to get a weapon you have to get them in a a dark alley or somewhere where they're not going to think you have to find an alibi whereas when you are that doctor and you have so many drugs that you can use and trust that you can abuse yeah it does become a lot easier and so a bit about the trial police later established that shipman would in most cases alter the medical records directly after killing the patient to ensure that his account matched the historical records what shipman had failed to grasp was that each alteration of the records would be time stamped by the computer enabling police to ascertain exactly which records had been altered. Obviously very clever to be a doctor, not that good well, at tech. He he did say in a couple of interviews that he was completely like tech phobic, couldn't understand them, got really into computers because obviously he could edit all the records <laughs> and he could like do that, but he didn't understand how they worked. So to him that was just, oh I've changed it. You know how like if you tip X something out mm. when you're writing to him, I think he just thought it was like that. You just change it, not realising it's all logged and time-stamped. Yeah. And... Which is mad. You would have fucking hated Windows 8. <laughs> <laughs> um, follow extensive investigations, which included numerous exhumerations and autopsies. The police charged Shipman with 15 individual counts of murder on... September the 7th, 1998, as well as one count of forgery. So I just wanted to run through really quickly the names of the victims that he was actually charged with murdering. So it was Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Muriel Grimshaw, Marie Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfret, Nora Nuttall, Pamela Hillier, Winifred Meller, Joan Media and Kathleen Grundy. Shipman's trial commenced in Preston's Crown Court on October the 5th, 1999. Attempts by his defence counsel to have Shipman tried as three separate phases, for example, cases with physical evidence, cases without physical evidence, and the Grundy case, where the forgery differentiated it from other cases, 
as well as to have damning evidence relating to Shipman's fraudulent accumulation of morphine and other drugs were thrown out. The trial proceeded on the 16 charges included in the indictment. The prosecution asserted that Shipman had killed the 15 patients because he enjoyed exercising control over life and death and dismissed any claims that he had been acting compassionately as none of his victims were suffering from terminal illness. Woodruff appeared as the fir first witness. Her forthright manner and account of her unremitting determination to get the truth impressed the jury and attempts by Shipman's defence to undermine, undermine her were largely unsuccessful. Which I'm like, yes, Woodruff. Thank you so much. Like, Do it, get it, prove he's the murderer, good night. See, yeah. Before I presume that some of these victims were suffering with terminal illness, mm. it's even more shocking when you realise that, like, again, like we were saying earlier about maybe he was trying to ease their suffering. Yeah. But, like, it's like my nan climbing up the garden hill every day and gardening and me going, we might have to have a put down, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, there's just absolutely no logic for there's any no of There's no reasoning. Decisions. Yeah, like, obviously, like, I mean, there wouldn't really be reasoning otherwise, but if they had terminal illnesses, you could kind of see the logic in his head. Yeah. But these are, like, you know... Completely These are older people, people, but fit and healthy... There's nothing... That's the shocking bit, is that, like you said, absolutely none of them having prior health conditions. Mm. There was absolutely no reason. Mm. And he can claim all that he likes, that there was, and it was compassionate, but... It wasn't. It wasn't at all. Next, the government pathologist led the court through the gruesome post-mortem findings, where morphine toxicity was the cause of death in most instances. Thereafter, fingerprint analysis of the forged will showed that Grundy had never handled the will and that her signature was dismissed by handwriting experts as a crude forgery. Not even a good forgery. No, a terrible it's one. Like, come on, put the effort in, mate. At least try. I'm not saying medical school teaches you how to forge things, but seriously, how can you be that intelligent? <laughs> but also, and... medical school teaches you to have, like, an un not unfortunate what's the word like a signature that cannot be forged yeah well because so all... surely he should at least know signatures <laughs> that's like day one of medical school guys yeah obviously we've all been Let's to medical all school get a good signature first um a police computer analysis then testified how shipman had altered his computer records to create symptoms that his dead patients never had in most cases within hours of his death of their death as the trial progressed on to other victims and the accounts of their relatives the pattern of shipman's behavior became much clearer a lack of compassion disregard for the wishes of attending relatives and reluctance to attempt to reluctance to attempt to revive patients were bad enough but another fraud also came to light he would pretend to call the emergency services in the presence of relatives and then cancel the calls when the patients discovered were discovered to be dead so telephone records showed that no actual calls were ever made to the emergency services which is just beyond can you imagine being there as a relative and you think the doctor there is doing everything they can calling an yeah. ambulance helping in any way they can and it was just completely but fake. one of the things i read was that although he pretended to call like the ambulance service and stuff and obviously didn't um but some members of families would ask him to perform like cpr and he would basically just refuse and say oh no they're already dead 
and in one case, like, I can't remember um, the victim's name, but her, I think, a member of the family anyway, um, said, oh, I can still feel a pulse. And he said, no, that's your pulse and refused to do anything else about it. And you, that's so it's sadistic. It really is. I can't even imagine not only the patients, but what their relatives would have to yeah. go through. On the 31st of January 2000, a jury found Shipman guilty of the murder of 15 patients under his kit, with a total number of victims approximately 250. Shipman was sentenced to life imprisonment with the recommendation that he never be released. He committed suicide by hanging on the 13th of January 2004, a day before his 58th birthday in his cell at Wakefield Prison. Which is just so heartbreaking that he got away with killing up to 250 people and then only actually spent, what, four years in prison? That's like nothing, is it? No. So obviously some of the victim's family felt that they'd been cheated as Shipman's suicide meant that they would never have the satisfaction of his confession nor the answer as to why he committed the crimes. Which is another thing to mention, when he actually did commit suicide, he'd still not confessed to any of the murders by then. So nobody had any yeah reasoning, any... People didn't even know their loved one's last moments because yeah. he didn't even dignify them with a response. Um, Shipman's motive for suicide was never established, though he reportedly told his probation officer that he was considering suicide to assure that his wife's financial security was good after he was stripped of his NHS pension. Primrose Shipman received a full NHS pension she would not have been entitled to if Shipman had lived past 60. Additionally, there was evidence that Primrose, who had consistently protested Shipman's innocence despite the overwhelming evidence, had, beca- had begun to suspect his guilt. He killed like 250 people. Yeah, like, oh, I mean, just now, after he's in prison, he's been convicted of these murders, he's in prison. Mm, oh, maybe he is guilty. Yeah, like the evidence is quite strong, Primrose. Why now? It must be difficult, though, like to yeah. accept that the man you thought was, it's the same as, not the same, but how the victims thought this is a doctor who's... Yeah trying to save my relatives, you think your husband is out there being a hero and saving lives and changing lives every single day. Mm. And then to discover in a very short space of time that the man you've loved has been killing people for the last 25 years. Because it's almost like that sort of double life, isn't it? Because it's Mm -hmm. like you see this person as one person, you see them as, you know, a family man, they're a doctor, they're doing all these great things. And then on the other side of it, they're killing people but then still coming home and Mm -hmm. I mean it's like we talked about last week with the Yorkshire Ripper Mm -hmm. it's kind of you know him killing people and then going back to a family party it's that that them splitting up their lives into two parts here's the the nice good bit and then here's the yeah I'm a a murderer you I mean you choose to live the rest of your life with someone when you get married to them you accept the good bits and the bad bits whether they leave their clothes on the floor, whether they never put the towels back on the rack, but you trust this person literally with your mm-hmm. life. And to have to think that they were abusing those privileges with other people must be hard to accept. Yeah, it mm. must be. I think what you said earlier about about this separate lives thing, mm. with Sutcliffe it was, it was, he was in the family party, 
he went out, brutally murdered a prostitute, and then came home and acted like no- nothing had ever happened. Yeah. With Shipman, he was living that life in work at once. Yeah. He was the good doctor at the same time that he was a murderer. He was yeah. that good at covering it. It's probably it. not even like a double life to him. It's all one life. Yeah. Shipman refused to take part in courses which would have encouraged acknowledgement of his crimes, leading to a temporary removal of privileges, including the opportunity to telephone his wife. During this period, according to Shipman's cellmate, he received a letter from Primrose, Tell me everything, no matter what. A 2005 inquiry found that Shipman's suicide could not have been predicted or prevented, but that procedures should nonetheless be re-examined. Not that I think necessarily that they could have done anything, but he did sort of tell his probation officer that mm-hmm. he was contemplating it. Mm-hmm. So And the reasons behind him contemplating yeah, it as there well. Maybe should have been a couple more steps in place. Would anyone like another cocktail? Ooh, go on then, yes please. Yes, I feel like we've uh, talked about some quite intense things. Let's drink more alcohol. Yeah, a bit more rum won't hurt. Okay, so now we all have... I can't know, you're going to start again, I was just rattling. Yeah, no, it's fine. Now we all have our very rattly cocktails back. I'm just going to talk a little bit about the aftermath of Dr. Shipman. So there were actually quite a few changes that were enacted in the years following his trial. These included having to have a medical assessor, sorry, one medical assessor per district to oversee certification. Uh, They had to investigate natural deaths and link with public health. There's now a two-tier certification for all deaths and periodic audits of certification. Deaths possibly due to medical error or negligence must now also be investigated. Revalidation also has now come in, which means every five years doctors must be assessed. All dangerous drugs are now handled in a much more careful way. Uh, they've, so they've all got to be registered with their serial numbers and doctors must be able to account for all instances drugs are used or disposed of it kind of worries me that that wasn't the case beforehand yeah it's like you could miss three vials of morphine and no one would even question where it's gone you'd just be like oh yeah they're in the bin like no one would know it's like 9-11 or titanic in that they're completely different kind of scenarios but they brought in things which now we consider completely obvious. Mm, yeah. So Titanic ensured that all boats had to have enough lifeboats for every passenger and evacuation protocols. 9-11 meant that we now scan for bombs at airports in a way that we used to literally let people Yeah, you could just things wander that you'd yeah. assume now have always been in place because yeah. why wouldn't they have been? So whether it be because of, well, in the case of Titanic, negligent, negligent, me, me, me. Or in the case of shipment on 9-11 actual murder it's yeah. stuff that we now take for granted that you would presume that we're always in place yeah definitely it would be like this makes so much sense to just have in place already yeah but it takes a massive tragedy sometimes to make people think actually we need to change the way that to we do these things. on these questions and changes most or some of the crimes that we talk about were never in our lifetime and you think these procedures which we would have always assumed were in place weren't even in place at the start of our lifetime so if anyone does want any more information on uh the shipman report you can actually find it on gov.uk that outlines all the information regarding the investigation and the aftermath so everything that was then put in place afterwards 
I would list it all, but we'd be here for the next like three days. Mm. It's like 180 pages long and uh, you know, that, that that's a bit too long for a podcast. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, it's really interesting really if you interesting. have the time. Listen, but we're not going to read it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, but yeah, so gov.uk shipment report if you do want to find a bit more about it. Now, there's a little bit that I kind of want to talk about. So some say that Shipman was inspired by a certain doctor uh, it, who was called John Bodkin Adams. So he was a British GP and I'd actually never heard of him until I, I was sort of researching this. Uh, so yeah, British GP, he was a convicted fraudster and a suspected serial killer. Between 1946 and 1956, 163 of his patients died while in a coma. So it was deemed worthy of investigation, which you think, yeah. Of course. <laughs> be a bit weird if they didn't look into it. But in addition, 132 out of 310 patients had left Adam's money or items in their wills. So you think maybe that's partly where Shipman got the idea from. Mm -hmm. So he, so uh, Adams was tried and acquitted of the murder of one patient in 1957. He was then found guilty in a subsequent trial of 13 offences of prescription fraud, lying on cremation forms, obstructing a police search and failing to keep a dangerous drugs register. He was struck off the medical register in 1957, but was actually reinstated in 1961. Uh, we don't really know a lot about what happened sort of after 1961, but he did die in 1983. Then it was actually another 25 years before any other doctor in Britain stood trial for murder. So this was L Leonard Arthur. He stood trial for murder arising from treatment or mistreatment. He was tried in November 1981 for the attempted murder of John Pearson, a newborn child with Down syndrome. He did not give any evidence in his defence, relying instead on expert witnesses and was acquitted for the crime. It's just heartbreaking. Yeah, you just think someone that in no way can protect themselves and relies on the protection of doctors and yeah in authority it's it's just going back to that thing again isn't it it's, it's the vulnerable mm -hmm. that some of these people seem to target so in 1990 dr cox a rheumatologist was convicted of the murder of a terminally ill patient who had begged him to kill her once painkillers had proved ineffective he injected her twi with twice the lethal dose of potassium chloride and she died within minutes he claimed that the intention was to relieve the suffering, but this wasn't actually accepted. And also, you can claim that you were doing it to help the suffering, ease the pain or whatever, but you used double the dose. Yeah. It's not just, oh, a little bit over what I should have, or, oh, oops, maybe I did a tad bit more. If you're doubling the dose, yeah. you cannot claim to be helping. Um, yeah. I think this is why euthanasia is still a tricky subject. Is you obviously look at shipment and that's obviously bad. Mm -hmm. If you had to kind of put it on a sliding scale <laughs> of... I'd put that at a 10. You've got yeah. shipment right at one end. <laughs> what are you from one to shipment? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you look at this other guy who, yeah, perhaps this patient did beg to be relieved of her suffering, but at the end of the day in this country, it's still illegal, mm -hmm. at least mm -hmm. for now. We don't know how that's going to change in future. And 
yeah, why would you do it in such a in a way that could cause such pain? Exactly. When Shipman arguably using morphine was would have been more ethical about oh, I don't know how to put it without No, I, I get what yeah. you mean yeah. in that if say some of Shipman's patients did beg him to put them out of this pain, it is the most sympathetic way to do it. Now there is another doctor, Dr. Lodwig, who in the same year, so in 1990, gave a terminal cancer patient an injection of lignocaine, which is a local anaesthetic, and potassium chloride, which proved rapidly fatal. Dr. Lodwig was asked to do something to relieve the patient's pain. He instructed a nurse to bring him some potassium chloride and lignocaine. When the nurse asked why, he said, I'm sending someone out there. He then drew a finger across his throat and pointed upwards, an act that his counsel later claimed was a joke. A few minutes later, the patient died. Like, I'm, Bad time joke. Like, like clearly, we all like slightly mm-hmm. inappropriate times to joke, but yeah, come on. That's just, oh, <laughs> to even try and claim it was a joke but is insulting. See, the thing is, and this is a weird thing about UK law, is... We've all watched American crime dramas. Mm. Your lawyer is a private lawyer quite often, and mm-hmm. they can recuse themselves from the case if you admit to murdering someone. Mm-hmm. In the UK, that's not the law. Yeah. In the UK, it's a public defender quite often, especially in criminal rather than mm-hmm. civil court. And even if you admit to them that you have murdered, they just have to give, I think, what's called a non-positive defence. Yeah, they have so, still have the duty to represent you. So they can no longer say my client is not a murderer, mm-hmm. but they can say everything around that. So even if, if I could I could say tomorrow I've killed 50 people and my lawyer could say, but you don't know that he's killed 50 people to the jury because he knows, but it's not a lie. Yeah, oh you could God. tell your lawyer, oh, hey, I was here doing that. Mm-hmm. And they could say his alibi is X, Y and Z. But yeah, they still have to legally represent you, don't they? Yeah. That's mad. So after the patient died, the nurses on the ward became suspicious and the next day, the hospital administration called the police. He did not record in his notes the use of potassium chloride or lingocaine or the exact time of death. Suspicious much? (laughs) It's like, I won't bother to write any of this down. I made a really badly timed joke. The patient died and I'm not going to write down the drugs (laughs) that I used. Sorry about it. Do you think he wrote down his joke, though? Do you reckon he said, little asterisks, did really funny joke? Come on. <laughs> oh, God. No. Um, so the forensic pathologist advising the prosecution de- determined the cause of death to be acute potassium poisoning. In court, though, the prosecution stated that its main medical witness was no longer convinced that the patient had died solely from a potassium overdose in addition and this bit gives me kind of chills uh the doctor argued that his intention had been to kill the pain but not the patient see it's again it's that whole debate around euthanasia and where the line of consent lies and whether you as obviously shipman as a doctor did not have that right at all he was completely in the wrong and then you find these people who were as I said, if a patient begs you to kill them, yeah, and then you find yourself having to defend that by saying you never meant to, even if it mm-hmm. was something they'd asked for, mm-hmm. it's just it's, it's such it's a weird line. Yeah, it's such um, a difficult position to be in because you get someone like Shipman that 
despite what he said and the sheer number of cases, he could never say that that every patient asked to die. Mm. Never. You know, you do get these few where it's like, okay, I can kind of see if someone has said, you know, to, you know, this person, person terminally ill, they're suffering kind of beyond belief. Ask them to numb the pain. I can, you know, still, it's that hard line of like, can you justify it? Can you, because still it is, if someone can continue living, Mm. the argument is still there that you should allow them to continue living. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, such a difficult topic. Isn't definitely, it? Dr. Ludwig was actually acquitted um, after his trial. There was no evidence given by the prosecution, so yeah, so he was actually acquitted uh, of this murder or murder in inverted commas. So those are some of the people that sort of followed Shipman. Obviously, a few sort of around the same time, earlier ones that maybe influenced his sort of idea especially with the forging of the wills mm-hmm. and collecting payments and things. But yeah, that's that's all I have to say on uh, Harold <sighs> Shipman. Wow. I've just got a few things to mention. Um, a couple of documentaries, if anyone wanted to have some more information, you can find both of these online. One is called Harold Shipman, Dr. Death, and the other one, Harold Shipman, Measuring Evil. Um, both of them are very highly rated and would give you lots of information. I also wanted to read you just a couple of quotes because it, it's the kind of thing that I read and I thought I cannot not tell you about this. So one was by a psychologist which looked at the case called Dr. David Holmes. He said he saw no one as being superior to him. In his own mind, in his own eyes, he was some sort of medical god. Which comes back to what we were saying about the Yorkshire Ripper last week with his sign in his window. Serial killers tend to see themselves as this other being, this higher act. Yeah, this I'm more important. Yes, which is what then leads the the confidence or the arrogance. Mm. And I thought for a psychologist to be able to look at him and say he sees himself as a like medical god, I don't doubt that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then a couple of quotes from Shipman was, the police complain that I'm boring. No mistresses, home abroad, money in Swiss banks. I'm normal. If that's boring, then I am. And I just think, okay, you may not have mistresses, but you killed 250 people. <laughs> that sounds like the message I would get from a 50-year-old man on Plenty of Fish. And he's thinking it's a of line. Yeah, you may think I'm boring just because I want to take you on a date to Pizza Express. <laughs> Tesco vouchers. (laughs) Uh, The last one I wanted to mention, this is a quote from Harold Shipman uh, when he was actually in prison. He says, life in here is entertaining. My cellmate Fred tried to hang himself Monday night. I heard the noise of his last breath, lifted him up, untied the knot and laid him on the floor before crying for help. When he's he still, was free, he yeah. was killing people. He's still even when blurring he's in that prison. line. Yes. Yeah. The blurring of the lines. Even when he's in prison, he he, he obviously isn't acting how most of us would act. How, like, or standardly, know what to if do. you think someone's done... I mean, let's be honest. If, you know, luckily none of us have ever been in that situation. But if you find someone that is trying to kill themselves, trying to hang themselves or something like that, you wouldn't wait to hear, like, the bra- you would immediately... Exactly. For him to mention, I heard the noise of his last breath. It's like, 
he's watching someone die and is still not doing anything about it. I've heard things about the last breath, you know, people say they've seen it with relatives mm. and I personally haven't, but it's, you know, apparently quite distinctive. It's that mm. last... Yeah. He's, but the death rattle, as he, they say, isn't it? He's yeah. heard that so many times. Yeah. He knows, he knows exactly. Yeah. Like, whether or not he admits to these 250 murders, he has witnessed hundreds of murders in his... Uh, hundreds of deaths in his career. Mm-hmm. For him to sit there and hear another last breath and still not rush into action is just astonishing to me. I've not, obviously, he hasn't forced that person to do it, but isn't that all, almost like negligence? Yeah. I, I know that he's, at this point, obviously not a, not a doctor anymore. He's had his licence revoked, but mm. that's still, if you see someone in that point, you, you almost have that, not the duty, because you're not in charge, but if, if you see but someone, I would say duty, yeah, well, like a humane again. duty, yeah, of like just a fellow human, you see that they're suffering, suffering, mm-hmm. and you would stop that. Like I would hope that all of us in that situation would immediately spring into action. I think the difference is is that we can't even begin to compare ourselves to someone like this, <laughs> like this narcissistic, arrogant downright evil human we Mm. can't even begin to say oh well i would have done this because you can't this person is not sane and that's where you have to draw the line really isn't it so on that cheery note (laughs) on that that cheery note thank you so much for listening uh we hope that you enjoyed it yeah i think it's tough because it's something that we all take for granted that the people you can trust aren't necessarily so. The people you're, who are paid to be trustworthy, yeah. who have that power over your life and death, aren't necessarily so. So we hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a, a very happy episode, uh, as always, clearly. Please keep liking and sharing on our social medias. Uh, if you want to hear anything specific from us, please get in touch. And we hope that you keep listening and enjoying because we'll keep doing them. I Could Murder a Cocktail is an independent podcast produced by Ellie Layden, Molly Dacey and Connor Hall. Researched by Ellie Layden and Molly Dacey and edited by Connor Hall.